Good morning. Thanks so much for coming out this morning. I think we are working on the uh, second flood of Chattanooga um, for a while. Uh, Amy Como posted the other day on Facebook a picture. I don't, I don't even think I was in the country when this happened. Of Chattanooga when it flooded at Coolidge Park. And I was just astounded. And I really think that's where we're headed with all this rain again lately. Um, I want to thank the band. It never ceases to amaze me that a community as small as ours has such amazing musicians who consistently give up their time to make worship meaningful for us in the mornings. And I'm always just incredibly blessed by what they are put to get, they put together. Um, so today I'm going to get to experience the challenge that Mark and Scott have often gotten to experience in trying to preach with a flood coming down around us. Um, so that will be a surprise for me. Uh, we are in the series called Undignified right now. Um, we started this series in um, the beginning of the month at Easter. And the beginning started with what it looked like for Jesus to be undignified on the cross. And I've had this idea of the sermon that I'm going to preach today for a while. And I was talking to a friend about it a couple of weeks ago. And he's like, hey, do you know where the cross is in that story? And I was like, um, maybe. And so I started guessing and uh, he kind of looked at me and he's like, no, it's here. And I was like, Oh, that's so awesome because I hadn't quite turned it and looked at the story from that perspective. And so I'd like today to move from where Mark started us at the cross on Easter to today, the story of what is predominantly known as the prodigal son. I think it's terribly titled and you'll find out why in a little bit. But as we go through the day, I want you to think, where is the cross in this story, because I think that picture and that understanding would give you a real new and amazing meaning for a story that is powerfully meaningful to hundreds and thousands of people. But before we can get there, we need to understand the background of where Jesus is coming from when he begins to tell us this parable. So we're going to take a step back into Luke 14 real quick. Jesus is preaching to the masses and in Luke 14, 33 through 35, he says, so then none of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. Notice Jesus has already given up a lot. And so he's asking his disciples to continue to give up their possessions. And he says, therefore salt is good, but even if salt has come, become tasteless with what will it be seasoned? It is useless either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears, let him hear. He who has ears, let him hear. And so we flip the page and start in Luke chapter 15. And this is how it begins. Now all the tax collectors and sinners we're coming near, coming near him to do what? To listen to him. See, Jesus has already says, if you have ears to hear, then come near to me. 
And the tax collectors and sinners are like, okay, I'm going to come and I'm going to listen to what it is you have to say. But the Pharisees, they have no ears to hear. In fact, their hearts are turned and twisted. And they look at Jesus and they say, both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Oh, they're appalled and disgusted that he would eat with taxpayers and sinners. And, or the tax collectors and sinners. But they're the ones that are coming near to him. Jesus is allowing this people that would be outcast and be ridiculed and put on the outside of society. He's allowing them to become near to him. And see, this would have been utter defilement, according to the Pharisees. The Pharisees see this and they think, you can't have anything impure with you. I might be able to say hello to you on the street. I might be able to hang out with you in the temple, but I would never sit down with you at the table because to do so would defile me. And so they're astounded that Jesus is doing this. But yet the tax collectors and sinners are coming near. And Jesus is already, before the story even gets going, he's already breaking these cultural norms. And he looks at the Pharisees knowing, I have no idea whether he could hear their grumbling and complaining or if he just knew it was happening because of his omniscience. But he knows that this is going on. And he turns to them and he tells them this parable. Notice it's this parable. It's not these parables. It's one story that's a connected meaning all the way through. So we have to see it as a whole. And he looks at them. I can just see him being like, I know that you think that I'm defiling myself. Well, let me just tell you what. You really have no idea what it's like for me to sit here with these tax collectors and sinners and eat with them. And so he says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, what man among you, he's telling them that they are considered some of the lowest people in the Hebrew community at the time. The shepherds would have been considered unclean because they worked out in the field with the sheep And they were out in the pastures all day, a totally disrespectable um, job. And so he's making the Pharisees put themselves in a situation in which they would never consider. And so he says, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep, would not leave that one? And see, even though they don't want to be compared to a shepherd... They recognize immediately the scripture that is so ingrained in their history. Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. Jesus will compare himself to a shepherd. God compares himself to a shepherd. But the Pharisees refuse to compare themselves to shepherds. Jeremiah 23.3. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them and bring them back to their pasture, and they will be fruitful 
and multiply. Ezekiel, in Ezekiel chapter 34, spends a whole chapter expounding on the meaning of Psalm 23. And he says, For thus says the Lord, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd cares for his herd in the day when he is among his scattered sheep, so I will care for my sheep and will deliver them from all the places to which they were scattered on a cloudy and gloomy day. Cloudy and gloomy day. I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by streams and in all the inhabited places of the land. I will feed them in good pasture and their grazing ground will be on the mountain heights of Israel. They will lie down on good grazing ground and feed in the rich pasture. I just read that. I will feed my flock and let them lead them to rest, declares the Lord. I will seek the lost, bring back the scattered, bind up the broken, and strengthen the sick. But the fat and the strong, you Pharisees, I will destroy. I will feed them with judgment. Jesus isn't only making the Pharisees identify themselves as a shepherd, but he is taking that identity that would be so disrespected unto himself, one of the lowest people in society. And he goes on to say, you lose it, you don't, who would not leave the 99 in open pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? Have you ever lost anything? I am notorious for losing things. If it is genetically possible to inherit this trait, I directly inherit it from my mother. Um, Because she is also incredibly notorious for losing things. I lose stuff all the time. And so I have become obsessed with creating places where everything goes all the time, right? I walk in the door and my keys must absolutely go here. Because if they don't go here, I'm going to lose it. And I'm not going to be able to find it again. The other week, about a month and a half ago, I guess, I lost a key. Not my set of keys, but another key. And I was so panicked. Because it's one of those keys that says, do not copy. You know, like, you can't get it copied because it's illegal to do so. And you're going to get in trouble if you start making it. And I've lost this key. And so I'm panicking a little bit. I have no idea where it went. So I call my mom, who can sympathize with me. And I'm like, I've lost this key. You've got to help me. You've got to pray that I find my key. I could not find the key for three weeks. And I was in such panic that I could not find the key. I was looking everywhere. I was looking in my car. I was looking in my clothes. I was looking in my backpack. I was looking at work and I was looking at home. Wherever I could think to look, I was looking for this key. I did finally find it in a jacket pocket. I just happened to one day put my hands in the pocket and there it was. But it's just a key, right? But that's what these shepherds are doing when they lose a sheep. They're like, I have lost a sheep. This is part of my livelihood. That key, it was important, but it was not a part of my livelihood. But I looked everywhere for it. And that's exactly what the shepherds would have done. They lose a sheep. This is part of their livelihood. Notice it's one out of 100, right? One one hundredth of this guy's possessions. And he leaves the 99 and he's going to go and he's going to search for that one. 
And he goes out, and I did not know this. Do you know that it could take days to find a sheep? Now, you might know that they are notoriously stupid, right? Like, sheep just get that rap. If you've been in church for any amount of time, somebody's taught about sheep somewhere along the way, and you know how stupid sheep are. It's just true. And so, they just wander around. They have no sense of direction to get themselves back home. This is just not going to happen. And not only do they not have any direction to get themselves back home, they get scared and frightened and they just quit. Stop. They don't move. And so the shepherd, knowing this, knowing that this sheep is in grave danger, leaves everything behind and he goes and he searches through the night and in the darkness and he will fight any wild beast that comes toward him or that might be attacking the sheep when he finds them to make sure he rescues that one. The shepherd is willing to go and search and take on that task. And the Pharisees are like, yeah, okay, I want to not be compared with a shepherd, but I get it. That shepherd is doing exactly what he's supposed to do, right? You lose a sheep, you go search for the sheep. It's your job. You're a shepherd. That's what you do. And then what does the shepherd do? He finds that sheep. He searches until he finds it. This is not a, oh, I can't find my key. I'll look for, an, um, you know, 10 or 15 minutes and I'll forget it and go back and look for it again. He continues the search until he finds the sheep. Until he finds the sheep. And here's the important thing. You know, I told you they're stupid. They give up. They stop. These, these sheep will just lay down. And they'll just bleep. Right there, just bah, you know, like they're scared, they're crying out, probably a lot more strong than my little poor bath just then. And they just stop, and the shepherd knows that sheep gives up and he is dead. He's not coming home. Once he reaches that point, there is no return. So the shepherd has to go until he finds it. And I love this in verse 5. When he has found it. It's not if. The shepherd will search until he finds his sheep. Whether he finds his sheep whole and can take it back or whether he finds pieces of his sheep and take back the pieces, he searches until he finds the sheep. And then this is even better. You know what he does? He gets over to that poor little sheep that is lost and alone and scared and really kind of committed itself to die. And he takes it he brings it, and he puts it up on his shoulders. Did you know that sheep can weigh anywhere from 40 to 75 pounds? Man, they're heavy. And so the shepherd comes, and he picks up the sheep, and he lays that burden on his back. He doesn't just clip a leash on it and drag it with him. You know, come on, come with me. It's not going to happen. Okay? He takes that burden on himself. And he rejoices. He doesn't grumble and complain about picking up the sheep and carrying the sheep as a burden. He rejoices because he has found it. That is the worth of a sheep. And then he carries it home. And he's not just excited about it. 
He's so happy about it. He throws a party. Man, I would, did not throw a party when I found my key. I was excited that I found my key, but I did not throw a party to find my key. But that's what the shepherd does. Is he's, the money, the livelihood in which he would have lost had he not found the sheep, he probably goes and spends on a celebration to celebrate the fact that he found the sheep he had just lost. And notice in verse 7, it says, I tell you in the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Little comparison here between the one who repents and the one who believes that it's not required. But think about this statement, more joy in heaven. Who is celebrating? Who's in heaven? Such a general statement for now. So now Jesus has not only made the Pharisees consider themselves as shepherds, he turns and does something that might be even worse. He compares them to women. Or what woman? Man, the Pharisees are probably flipping out. First, you want to compare me to a shepherd, the lowest in society. Now you want to compare me to a woman, the most disrespected in society. They are not happy with Jesus and his breaking of cultural boundaries. But notice, he is the most amazing theologian that there could be that has ever walked the face of this earth. Because not only is he making the Pharisees realize their lowliness... In the comparisons that he's making, he's also at the same time elevating the status of women. Because remember, just as Jesus identified himself with the shepherd, Jesus is now also identifying himself as as a woman. And he is saying, I care about them all equally. They all have equal status in my eyes. And so he's just sneaking in just a little bit on the side saying, You may not think that shepherd is worthy or that sheep is worthy. And you may not think that women are worthy, but I'm going to break down every barrier you have and raise up women to a status that you cannot fathom. He doesn't even miss a beat. And so he goes on to say, if she has lost 10 silver or has 10 silver coins and loses one coin. Okay, so we've lost a coin. We might be thinking, I've lost a penny, I've lost a dime, I've lost a nickel, I've lost a quarter. Well, it's really interesting. I was really taken by this. I was like, I really want to know what all this stuff is worth. I wanted to know what a sheep was worth. I wanted to know what these coins were worth. And it took forever for me to finally get an answer to this. The coin was easy. The coin would have been a drachma or what would have also been considered a denarius. So one, and you might remember the laborers who went out and they all labored and they got one denarius and they all complained because the ones who started in the morning got the same as the ones who started at night and it was all one denarius. So a denarius is a day's wage, one day's wage. So when the shepherd loses his one sheep, he's losing one out of 100 days worth of work. That was the comparison to one coin. So notice the value is the same. The sheep held the same value as the coin. But the comparison is not equal. One is one out of a hundred. That's not bad. If I lose a dollar out of a hundred, I'm probably not too upset about it. 
But if I lose one out of ten, and that's all I have, my anxiety starts to increase, right? It's like, that dollar now means more to me because that's all I have versus the dollar, the sheep, that I had when I had a hundred. So he's increasing the value of that which is lost. And what does this woman do? Again, she does exactly what's expected. She gets down on her hands and knees in her home and starts searching the floor. Now, if you're like me, which most of you hopefully are not, you have stuff all over your house. That's just the way I live. You would think that I would like to be more organized than I that, but I'm not. And so for me to go searching for something, I'm picking up clothes and I'm picking up books and I'm picking up my bags and my shoes and who knows what else is laying there. But my house is clean because those of you who know me also know that I do not like dirt and being dirty and sticky and grimy and I just cannot stand it. So I'll handle the stuff, but I don't want the dirt. But, but this lady lives in a dirt house, right? Her floors are dirt. Her walls are dirt. Her roof is probably thatched grass. So when she gets down on her hands and knees, she's not crawling around on plush carpet. She's crawling around in the dirt. And she's having to look through all those cracks that form when you have a house made out of mud. And so she's climbing around. She's getting dirty. And it hurts because the floor is hard. But that's how important this coin is. And she lights the lamp. And she sweeps it. And notice it says, she does so carefully. Carefully. Until she finds it. And then again we see, when she has found it, she's persistent. She's going to search until she finds it. And it's not an if, it's a when. And she goes after it. And what does she do? She throws a party. So this coin that is one-tenth of her possession, it's valuable to her. She's probably, again, going to go spend that same worth to celebrate the fact that she found it. So she calls everybody together saying, rejoice with me, for I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you, there is joy in the presence of angels of God over one sinner who repents. What happened in the rejoicing earlier? Where was the rejoicing? It was in heaven. Very general statement there. There's lots of people in heaven. There are angels in heaven and God is in heaven. But we start to see the view getting more narrow because now it's not rejoicing in heaven. It is joy in the presence of angels. If it's joy in the presence of angels, it's not necessarily the angels. Now, I believe the angels are up there rejoicing. But the point here is it's not the angels who are rejoicing. It is God. It is his joy that is in the presence of the angels. That's how valuable the sheep and the coin are. So just in case we don't miss anything, let's take a look at where we are. Because this is a dual analogy and there's so much. I'm leaving out so many things going on in this passage, but I just want to take a moment to back up and let you see the comparisons that are being made. We have two types of lostness. We have the sheep 
who is lost in the wilderness, the sheep that's lost far away from home, not anywhere nearby. It's rebellious living, whether it's rebelliousness because they wandered away or rebelliousness because of a choice to follow something other than the shepherd. It's rebellious living. And the coin, the coin is lost at home. It's the one that's lost in the house. Doesn't even know that it's lost. Has no concept of being lost. It's not worried. It's not scared. It thinks it's just fine. And the value of the lostness has been increasing. From one one-hundredth to one-tenth. But what's consistent so far is the seeker. The seeker is the one that's the same in both stories. The seeker is patient. The seeker in both stories is willing to enter into the darkness. The seeker is the one that's willing to take the personal risk to go into that darkness, to fight the wild beast, or to get down on the floor and crawl around in the dirt. And the seeker is doing exactly what's expected. You lose a sheep, you find your sheep. You lose a coin, you find your coin. You lose a key, you find your key. You can't go on without it, right? It's expected. It's your job. This is what you're supposed to do. And the seeker is persistent. He keeps going. That is the best part of the story, I think, is that the seeker is persistently pursuing that which is lost. That is awesome. And then as we've seen, it's the seeker who bears the burden, right? Picks up the sheep, carries the sheep on his back. The one that gets down there in the dirt and picks up the coin. And then we see that the seeker is rejoicing and brings everybody to the party. He's not leaving anybody out. But don't miss that though the one is lost... And the seeker goes and finds repentance is still required. It is a mutual working of the seeker going out to find and repentance being required once it's been found. There still has to be acceptance of being found. You have to say, I've been found. I'll go with you. Great. Whether it's you throw me along on your shoulders or you pick me up out of the dirt, I'll go with you. Repentance. And so at this point, the Pharisees are starting to get what's going on in this parable. They may not be happy about it. They may not like the fact that they're being compared with the lowest in society or the most disrespected in the society. But they're getting the comparisons. And they're, they're working this dual analogy with them being identified as the shepherd and the woman and Jesus being identified as the shepherd and the woman. And this is such an indictment on them and their character. But Jesus is only getting started. He's just laying the framework to break down everything that the Pharisees believe should happen. And so he begins to tell the story that we so well know as the prodigal son. Terrible name for this story. But in verse 11, it says, And he said, so Jesus is turning back to the Pharisees again, and he says, And he said, a man had two sons. Okay, so what did we have? We had one sheep 
one out of 100. We had one coin, one out of 10. But now we have one sun, one out of two. The value of that which is lost has just increased exponentially. It does not even compare to the worth of the lost sheep. It doesn't even compare to the worth of a lost coin because now we have a lost son. And I cannot imagine what it would be like to be a parent who has a child who is lost. I ran away once when I was a little kid. I thought I had been given the permission to go to the playground on my own. So in the middle of Riverbend, I darted off from my parents. My mom finally catches up to me and she grabs me. Stacy, what were you doing? Why did you run away? And then she pulls me in for a hug and just grips me so tight, so angry with me, but so excited that she had found me. It's a person this time. It's not a sheep. It's not a coin. It's a person. And that's who is lost. One out of two. And the younger of these two brothers said to his father, Get, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. Man, do you know what he's saying? He's walking up to his dad and he's saying, I wish you were dead. Just give me the money that I would have once you die and I'll just go off on my own. Please, die right now. Can you imagine that? I wish you were dead. Blatant disregard for his father and the relationship that they could have had. And so what does the father do? He divided his wealth. He gave it to him. Isn't that strange? See, here's the thing that you have to understand. We are so casual in our American culture. There's not a lot that we hold high and formal today. I can remember being in high school and feeling guilty after a softball game, walking in in my uniform and cleats to a restaurant because you didn't go to a restaurant in your uniform and cleats. It's just not that informal. And in the Middle Eastern society, which this culture still exists today, so if you compare what's happening in the Bible with the culture today, it's very, very similar. And so for a son to walk up and tell his dad that he wishes he were dead, what should be happening at this moment is that the father reaches out with the back of his left hand, which is more unclean than the right hand, He reaches out and backhands him. That's what should happen. That's really what should be occurring at this point in time. But it's not. The father divides the wealth. And it's so funny to me that he divides it not only between his younger son, but also goes ahead and gives it to the older son. He's giving to them both. And the younger son, what he's doing when he does this, he he divides the wealth between them both. And then it says, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on the journey. So here's what happened. The stuff that he would have inherited would have been stuff. 
It was not money. He would have inherited sheep and goats and cows and possibly camels, and he would have inherited fields for crops. And so when it says he gathered it together and went on a journey, what's really happening is he's selling off his family heritage. Things that would have been a part of the family for generations. He's just laying them aside. And he's not even getting what's worth, what they're worth. Because he's having to sell it really, really fast. And the rest of the community looks at him and says, You are breaking the law. You are totally disregarding your family. You're totally disregarding your history. And so they might buy it. Maybe those people that are on the edge of society might look at this and say, That's a good deal. I'll take it, but I'm only going to give you $10 for it when it's worth a hundred or a hundred thousand dollars worth when it's worth a million, right? They're not going to go out and risk dishonoring the father who has been so generous in giving to this son. But the father grants the request. The son sells everything as fast as he can and he runs as far away as possible. He leaves his Jewish Hebrew homeland and he goes into the land of those degradable Gentiles. And when he gets there, he ends up, he says, he journeys into a different, distant country and there he squandered his estate with loose living. This is wild, reckless, and as we'll see in a little bit, He's likely squandering his family heritage on prostitutes. Man, this is a rotten kid. He has lost it all. But he's not even at the bottom yet. He doesn't have anything left and he cannot bring himself to be like, I don't have any money, maybe I should go home. Yeah. I don't have any money and I'm not going home. So what can I do? It says, when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country and he began to be impoverished. And so refusing to still go home, he goes out and hired himself out to one of the citizens of the country. Kind of ironic, isn't it? The same one who's probably buying people is now selling himself. He goes from prince to prisoner in a matter of days. It's done. And so he hired himself. This is such a funny word. This word for hired himself is like he glued himself. He stuck himself to this guy. It tells us that even this Gentile doesn't want this, this young man. He says, you are so awful. I don't even want you here with me. And so he says, okay, why don't you go and feed the pigs? He's like, I can't get you away from me. I can't get you. It's like that little mutt dog that wants to follow you home that just can't shake. That's what's happening with this boy. He's so impoverished. He sticks himself to this man that is a citizen of the other country. And... He says, okay, 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 just go feed my pigs. No offer of wages, no offer of shelter or clothing, just sends him off to feed the pigs. And at this time, Jews didn't like bacon. 
It wasn't that funny, right? Like they, this isn't, this is a bad deal. You've got to understand it's bad to be a shepherd. It's bad to be a woman, but it is the absolute worst thing possible for you to lose your money in a Gentile land and then end up feeding pigs. We just don't get that in our society, but that's what's happening here. He has now hit bottom. There is nothing left for him. And he gets so bad that in verse 16, he says he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods the swine were eating and no one would give anything to him. The picture here is of a Jewish boy who is so repulsed by swine and pigs that he is now digging in the mud and the dirt and the pen with them. It's disgusting. But pigs are big and nasty, and they will fight you to the death over their food. So he's in there with them trying to get food, wallowing around, stinky, messy, gross. I would never want to touch it. And he's realizing he is completely defiled, completely broken, completely separated. And then one day, it says in verse 17, he came to his senses. This is more like he just recognized the situation he was in. This is not a a recognition of repentance and returning. This is just more like, this is a bad mess. And so he looks at and he thinks, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? He knows, despite the fact that he ran as far away as possible from his dad, he knows his father is a generous man. Because even the hired servant have more than enough to eat. So he devises this plan. And he says, I'm dying here with hunger. I know. I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I'll say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. It's just a ploy. He's not looking for restoration with his father. He's just looking for a way to get out of his situation. But he knows his father is generous enough to give it to him. And so he plots and he gets up and he goes home. He's recognized his poverty and he's recognized his father's position. But he has not yet recognized that he's going to have to accept it. And it says in verse 20, he got up and he came to his father. So he walks, he's back the edge of the village. And just see him standing there. See, for his father to have been the kind of man he was, at very minimum, he had to be nobility, if not royalty. And so the son is standing there on the edge thinking, what is going to happen? Best illustration that I have experienced this happened at Bible study a few weeks ago. We were over at the Rains' house, and the Rains' have a creek. It's probably a river right now, but they have a creek in their backyard. And the kids love to play out there while we are having Bible study. And so all the kids had gone out, and they were playing And um, Owen Rogers, one of my favorite 
four-year-olds, I think he might be five now, um, ever had gone out to play by the creek. So he's out there with his brothers and sister and all the other kids playing, and he's messing around. And I know there's always been this little tension, like, Mom, can I play near the creek? Mom, can I not play near the creek? Um, Are you sure? Is it okay? Is the water too high? You know, because there's some safety issues with playing near a creek. All this stuff is going on. Well, somehow, whatever Owen was doing out there, he managed to fall into the creek. So he falls into the creek, and his backside is soaking wet. Totally wet. And so he comes to the door, and he brings Ian with him. He doesn't even come alone. He brings Ian with him. And Ian comes in, and Ian whispers in Kim's ear. Kim's like, what? And we realize Owen's fallen in the creek. And... I don't know who else could see because the door wasn't completely open, but I looked and I could see Owen standing in the door. (laughs) The look on his poor little face was just like, and he was wringing his hands and he, he just looked like, I don't know. I know that I'm dirty and I know that I'm stained and I'm wet and I really shouldn't walk into the house looking like this. He recognized it. And he's just thinking, oh, this is a bad situation. And, and I look at him and I see it on his face. And I'm just, you know, my heart goes out to the little guy. And so I go and I get him. And that's what's happening right here. This son didn't just fall into a creek. He's been wallowing with the pigs. And he walks up to the edge of the village. And he's standing there. And he's wringing his hands. I mean, he's got a plan, right? Like, he knows what his plan should be to get back in favor with his father. But he also knows that he's dirty and he's stinky and that he really, really shouldn't walk back into the village. He's not welcome there. See, in the community, they would have had this ceremony That when you have lost your money to the Gentiles and you come home having lost your money to the Gentiles, they would have had this very simple but very meaningful ceremony that cuts him off. He knows as soon as he steps in and walks down that road, it's done. The villagers, the father doesn't even have to do it. The villagers would have done it for the father. Cut him off. That's what should be happening here. But the father is expectantly waiting, just like Jesus is receiving the centers, receiving is waiting with expectation. The father is looking out and he knows what his son looks like. And he knows far away. That's my boy. That's my son. Oh, wait, he can't come into the village. I know that when my son starts to come into the village, the village is going to start degrading him. They're going to shame him. Any honor that he might possibly have left will be gone. And so what does the father do? You've got to picture this. It's an older gentleman, probably a little bit graying in the hair. He's got his beard and he's wearing his robes of nobility. And see, men like that don't run. Men of stature just can't do that. And on top of the fact that they don't run, they don't even show their ankles. It's just not proper. It's kind of like Queen Elizabeth. You think she's throwing off her pink dress and her hat and she's running for her grandkids. It just doesn't fit, right? But what does he do? 
It's impossible to run. Ladies, you know, you can't run in a dress, right? So what do you got to do? You've got to hike it up. And he starts to run. And not only is he running, he's showing his ankles. And he is fleeing for his son. And the servants are following him going, something's got to be wrong. Why is this man doing this? And the villagers are looking and they're like, that's not supposed to happen. Oh my gosh, that's shameful for him to run. It's shameful for him to show his ankles. And what does he do? He gets out there. It says, while his son was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. This word for compassion is a physical reaction. His stomach turned and he hurt for his son. And he wanted to alleviate any pain that his son might suffer. And so he runs to him. And he gets there and he falls on him and embraces him. And he starts kissing him. It's very proper in Middle Eastern culture to greet those that you know and love with a kiss. And that's what this father is doing. It's just like the song was saying. Sin's ugliness collides with redemption's kiss. See, the father knew the son couldn't bear under the shame. And so he runs and he takes it upon himself. But he doesn't stop there. The son, realizing the situation, says, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no worthy longer No longer worthy to be called your son. And he stops. So true. And he realizes his plan is worthless. He doesn't go on, make me as one of your servants. He realizes that though he broke the law, what was really broken was a relationship. It was the rejected love of the father that was the issue, not losing the money. And the father is willing to go and meet the son. This is not expected. See, when the shepherd searches for the sheep, it's expected. When the woman looks for the coin, it's expected. But this... This act of love and taking on the shame of a son by the father, it's not expected. But he doesn't stop there. The father says to his slave, slaves, quickly, about as fast as the son left the city, quickly bring out the best robe. There would have only been one in the family. Bring out the best and put it on him. It was so amazing. As I realized this and I was processing the connections of where everything fits, there's another place in which the father comes out and he clothes the lost. Do you remember when it was? In the garden? After Adam and Eve sinned, they tried to cover their own sin and their own shame with leaves. It's improper. It's going to fall away. It's not long lasting. And so what does God do? He takes the first sacrifice and he clothes them. And that's where we are here. The father clothing his son, covering his sin and his shame. 
He's not even going to make him take a bath. He's putting it on over it. And he's walking him through the village. This is my son. And I'm the one that was restored his honor. I'm the one that went to the edge of the village and got him. He didn't come home on his own. He got to the village and couldn't come any farther. Farther. It was me that brought him back. Puts a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet. And he kills the fattened calf. And he celebrates. It's no longer a mystery. It's not somebody up in heaven. It's not somebody in the presence of angels. It's God. Jesus is celebrating the fact that he has found the lost. Wow. And at this point in time, you're sitting there, Stacy. We know this is the story of the prodigal son, and you keep telling us this is a terrible name. Like it is. Because this is not about the son. It is absolutely not about the son. It's about the Savior. It's about the Savior who goes out and seeks that sheep that is lost in the wilderness. It's about the Savior who goes out and seeks that coin that doesn't even know it's lost. And it's about the Father who does the unexpected. Does what nobody thinks he should do. And bears the shame of his son. This is the ultimate of undignified. And the Pharisees are looking at Jesus. And they're like, this is not possible. They might have been able to follow along so far. But when they see this happening with the father, they're like, this cannot happen. And it's amazing that God would do this. You see, he said, you are valuable enough. You're not one out of a hundred or one out of ten or one out of two. And both are very important in this story. He's saying, you're so valuable. I will lay down my honor. I will lay down my dignity and I will take your shame that you deserve. Jesus is a seeking savior. I've studied a lot of world religions and I have not found a single one that has a God that will seek mankind for the good of mankind. Not one except for Jesus, the most high God and Jesus in his amazing grace disrobes from his royal garments and steps in to the skin of man. So that he can seek and save those of us who are lost. But you see, there's a second part of this story. It's not about just those of us who were lost in the wilderness. It's about those of us who were lost right here at home. We think we've got it all together. Listen to the other older brother. Now the older son was in the field and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing. And he summoned his servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, 
Your brother has come and your father has killed the fattened calf. Oh, can you hear the jealousy? That fattened calf, which would have been mine because it's my inheritance. And the father has received him back safe and sound. The safe and sound is not just about health. It's that word peace, shalom. It is clean and forgiven. The relationship has been restored and the son is angry because the son should not be restored to a relationship with the father. And so he refuses to go in. And what does the father do again? He goes out to the son yet again taking the shame, knowing that he should not be the one to deal with his son. He should just disregard it and keep on celebrating. But he goes out with him, out to him, and he pleads with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I've been serving you and never, never neglected a commandment of yours. And yet you have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, it's kind of like parents, that's your son. Nope, nope, that's your son, right? This son of yours came who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes. You killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you have always been with me and all that I have is mine. But we had to celebrate and rejoice for this brother of yours was dead. He wasn't just lost. He was dead and has begun to live, was lost, and has been found. At this point, the Pharisees are looking at this and they're saying, he's talking about us. We're the ones that think we've got it all together. We're the ones that think we're righteous. We don't need anything apart from God because we can work our way toward him. We have never disobeyed his commands. And Isaiah's prophecy is coming true right before their eyes. It says, he grew up, I'm actually going to skip down. He was despised and forsaken of man. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And like one from whom men hid their face, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And the chastening of our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. You see, by the time Jesus gets down to the comparison of the two sons, one is not more valuable than the other. They are both of infinite worth. And he goes out and he pleads with both of them to come home and accept the love and grace that only he can offer. Have you seen the cross today? Where are you in this picture? Maybe you are on the other side of being found. And you look at this story and you know that Christ has already covered you with his robe. 
From that point, our job is to look at the world and say, Jesus, I'm going to join you in seeking the lost. That's where we are at this point. Others of you may be in the situation of the younger brother. Maybe for whatever reason, you have wandered off, whether it be deliberately or accidental, you are living in a distant land. Jesus is waiting, and he will be the one that runs to you and brings you home. Maybe you're the one who is sitting there going, I've been in church all my life. I participate in Bible studies. I go and I do the right things and I don't do all the wrong things. Maybe this is an opportunity for you to take a moment and think, do I really need to be found? Is Jesus pleading with me to really come into the house? Jesus is the one who seeks and saves. This is not about the Son. It's about the seeking Savior. Amen. Jesus, we cannot fathom the love and the grace and the humility that you bore when you ran after us and settled and took it all on the cross. And so I pray that you would work in our hearts and in our minds to help us understand and know where we are in this picture. We have seen the cross in you bearing the shame that was so due to us. And so may I, for myself, join you in seeking and rejoicing. And Father, I pray that you would work in the hearts of the younger brothers and the older brothers in whatever state we find ourselves in that we would come to you and when we would allow you to fall and embrace us where that the sin and the ugliness meets your kiss of redemption. Amen.